When I was about 10 years old, my dad came home with a large framed picture which had a copy of the Stockton Records front page about the Argonaut Mine Disaster of 1922. But there was something different about this picture, as there was a photograph of the miners of the Argonaut superimposed on the newspaper headline front page. My dad hung it in our hallway of our home, and every day I would walk through that hallway and stop and look at the photograph. Sometimes I would stand there and read the article, while other times I would stare at the faces, wondering if I was looking at one of the miners who had perished in the disaster so many years ago. My dad's sincere interest in the history of the Argonaut disaster piqued a genuine interest in local history as a whole for me, especially Amador County history, as that was where we lived at the time. Over the years, there have been books, blogs, articles, and even some documentaries on the subject covering the horrific event that took place in 1922. But today, I wanted to share with you my investigation into this somber event. This will be one of two podcasts that will delve into the history of the disaster, as the second podcast will venture more into the stories of the miners themselves. This story is very special to me, as I feel I have a genuinely personal attachment. Come with me as we go back a hundred years to Jackson, California, where we will take a deep dive down into the Argonaut Mine. I am your host, Jamie Rubio, and this is Stories of the Forgotten. On August 27, 1922, at approximately 10 p.m., the skip tender at the Argonaut Mine, Steve Pasolich, was working his shift for the night. Now, a skip tender is what I could only compare to as a kind of elevator operator who rode on the bale of the skip. For those of you who are not familiar with a mining skip, it was a metal bucket type contraption that could transport equipment and rock as well as miners from the mine back up to the surface and back down again. Now the hoist house, which had the cables to the skip, was located further downhill. So in order to request the skip to be lowered or raised, you had to communicate with the hoist house. So there was a bell system in place that Pasolich had to use to communicate with the hoist house to let the person in charge there know when he needed to go up or down the shaft. The furthest you could go down the skip was to the end of the line, which was at the 4800 level. But then the only way you could go was back up again. You have to remember, the only places in the mine that had electricity or light was at the stations of each main level or the main shaft of the mine. After that, the miners were solely dependent on the light of their carbide lamps. Besides being the skip tender, Steve Pasolich's job was also to retrieve the lunch buckets and bring them down to each level of the mine and drop them off. Once he had dropped off all the lunches to each level, he would go back up the skip again. The shift boss that night was Clarence Bradshaw. Now, he was the main guy in charge that night and below him would be the jigger boss, and then below him would be the level boss. 
That night, the jigger boss was Ernie Miller. Just after lunch, Bradshaw asked Pasolich and another miner, Mitchell Jogo, to go with him to drop off waste from the chute and dump it to the 4200 level. Now, as they prepared the ore cart to go underneath the chute where it was overhead, as they were pulling out the stopboard, the falling rock pushed through and broke the stopboard, breaking it to pieces. So, Jogo said he would go down to the 4600 level and get wood to build another stopboard for the chute before going back up the skip again with the two other men. So Bradshaw told him to go ahead while they waited for him. It was about 10 minutes or so before Bradshaw decided that Jogo was taking a little too long. So Bradshaw and Pasolich started walking down the drift back towards the main shaft when they noticed haze in the air and they realized it was smoke. The San Francisco call reported Bradshaw's experience, although they got a few typos here, so bear with me. Quote, by a margin of only a few minutes, shift boss Clarence Bradshaw, Steve Pasolich, and Michael Jago escaped from the Argonaut mine before the fire made egress possible. Bradshaw says he and two companions were at the 4,200-foot level at 11.40 o'clock the night of the fire when he smelled smoke. Without an instant's delay, he called the two miners to accompany him up the shaft. The smoke became thicker and thicker as they ascended, and at the 300-foot level, they were almost overcome by heat, unquote. Now, the two typos there is, uh, Mitchell Jogo is the correct way to say the miner's name, and they were not at the 300-foot level. They were at the 3,000-foot level, which is a huge difference. But regardless, this was uh, the newspaper's early reporting of the story. Now, according to Bradshaw, the men wrapped their coats around their heads to keep the smoke from getting to their lungs while they ascended up to the fresh air from the surface, which was just about at the 3,000-foot level. Now, you see, the fire was just below the 3,000-foot level, and because of the ventilation system, which was a large fan installed at the head of a nearby mine shaft known as the Muldoon, which was an old abandoned mine that the Argonaut decided to start using, they had installed a fan at the head of that mine shaft, and what it would do is the fan would pull air from the head of the Argonaut um, at the collar of the mine. So it would pull air down into the Argonaut mine and keep fresh air running through the mine and the drifts for the miners. It would pull it down and move it throughout the mine and then go back up through the Muldoon shaft. But see, because of the fire, now the smoke was being drawn down into the mine instead of up. So once the men on the skip had passed the fire, they were able to breathe again. But that's when they realized that all of the men below them were now going to suffer from carbon monoxide poisoning due to the smoky air being pulled down into the mine shaft to the deepest parts of the mine drifts where the 47 miners were working that night. Jigger boss Ernie Miller caught the scent of smoke at the 4,800 foot level 
and quickly phoned the hoist house to let them know smoke was coming down the shaft. When Bradshaw picked up the line at the 2,000-foot level, he warned Miller the shaft was in fact on fire, but they were trying to put it out. The last words they heard Ernie Miller say was all right, and he hung up the line. Now, this is where it gets tricky, because we will never know exactly what happened after that. All we can know is what was found after rescuers recovered the miners' remains. One would like to assume that Miller at least attempted to get his men out through the ventilation rises in the Muldoon shaft, which was technically supposed to be their emergency exit. But they stopped at the 4,350-foot level and ended up barricading themselves in a crosscut, which leads me to believe the air was just so bad they had no other choice but to bunker down and wish for the best. Another reason I believe that this is exactly what happened is because this had happened before to Ernie Miller. You see, he was a survivor of another horrible mine disaster only five years earlier. The infamous Granite Mountain Mine Disaster in Butte, Montana. In that experience, a fire had ignited when a miner's carbide lamp got a little too close to an oily paraffin paper that was insulating a three-ton electric cable that had been brought down the shaft to complete, of all things, a sprinkler system. When the paper ignited, the fire spread quickly to the timbers of the framework in the shaft, and before they knew it, it was uncontrollable. A little over half of the miners escaped, but 168 were not so lucky. Most died from the carbon monoxide poisoning, not so much the fire itself. But there were two groups of men in different parts of the mine who had built bulkheads to create a makeshift barrier between themselves and the carbon monoxide from the smoke. Both groups were eventually rescued. The first group was rescued after 38 hours, and the last group after 50 hours. It was said that Ernie Miller was among the men in the last group, which only six of the eight men survived. According to reports from Miller's family, it was Ernie Miller who helped his co-workers build that bulkhead in the crosscut, something done in such a similar fashion at the Argonaut, which leads me to believe it was Ernie who tried to save his men. Going back to the story, by the time Bradshaw, Pasolich, and Jogo got up the shaft of the mine, they quickly tried to think of ways to put out the fire. They told Virgilio Garberini, the superintendent of the mine, to let them open the sump reservoir and dump the water down the mine shaft to extinguish the fire. He agreed, and they went to work. Unfortunately, the valve hadn't been opened in a long time, and it had become rusted shut. So it took a lot of muscle and help from a sledgehammer to break the valve and let the water do its job. But once the water had been poured, the makeshift rescue crew realized the fire was still burning in adjacent drifts of the mine, places where the water couldn't reach. Different people came and tried to convince Garberini to reverse the fan on the Muldoon shaft or just to turn it off completely. Garberini tried to explain that by doing so, the fire would then burn upwards and completely decimate the main shaft itself, destroying any chance of firefighters reaching the fire deep inside the mine. Garberini wasn't just the superintendent of the mine, 
He had also been the master mechanic who designed the working mechanisms of the mine itself back in 1909. He knew the mine better than anyone, and he was adamant that the fan not be touched in any way. Byron Pickard, who worked as the district engineer for the U.S. Bureau of Mines, and Fred Lowell, the Industrial Accident Commission district engineer, kept on Garberini to make a rescue via the Muldoon shaft. But Garberini continued to reason with them that the shaft was too dangerous. From the smoke to the toxic carbon monoxide gases, the men, even at their best efforts, could not have enough time, even with the right breathing apparatuses, to reach the miners in time without risking their own safety. That and by shutting off the fan, it would then allow the Argonaut main shaft to be completely destroyed. Not only that, but once the fan would be shut down, all the ventilation doors that had been held shut by the sheer suction of the fan would simply open in the drifts below. This would prevent any and all fresh airflow to the miners, even if they allowed the fire to destroy the Argonaut shaft above. The engineers couldn't reverse the fan either because no provisions were made when initially installing the fan to make the fan reversible under certain circumstances. It only worked one way. That was outward, pulling the air from the Argonaut and out the collar of the Muldoon. There was no way that this was going to work. This was when they decided to make their rescue attempt via the Kennedy Mine. You see, the Argonaut and the Kennedy Mines were connected at one point up until a fire occurred in 1919. The only way the two mining companies could figure out how to stop the fire was to simply flush both mines out. After that, the two companies decided it would be better to seal off the connections to one another. But now, they would need to reconnect the two mines in order to make a last-ditch rescue attempt before it was too late. It was surveying work done years prior by civil engineer Walter Ephraim Downs that directed the rescuers where to dig through to the Argonaut mine shaft in an attempt to rescue the trapped miners. It was decided that the rescue crew would go in through the Kennedy and reconnect the two mines via the Kennedy's 3600 level drift with the cross cut near the Argonaut's 4200 level. Unfortunately, this would be no walk in the park for the miners, as the mud, debris, and compression from the flooding of the mines just a few years prior had caused much of the connecting passes to collapse. There were still others convinced that they could go through the Muldoon shaft to save the miners, which was shot down each time. One such person, Benjamin Irvine Hoxie, who was a foreman and later the superintendent of the mine in Fremont, was convinced he could not only make a successful rescue through the Muldoon, but he could get it done in one day, as opposed to weeks going through the Kennedy Drifts. Again, his ideas were shot down, and the plan for rescue efforts by way of the neighboring mine continued. At one point, the rescue crew decided to go from the 3,900-foot level at the Kennedy and work towards the Argonauts' 4,600-foot level, 
as it appeared the first attempt via the 3600 foot level wasn't going fast enough. Many of the people working in the mine trying to get through were relatives of the trap miners, including other employees of the mine itself. Eventually, they did break through, and on September 18th, exactly 23 days from the time the fire started, the bodies of the miners were discovered at the 4,350-foot level. They had barricaded themselves in a crosscut using timbers and chinking the gaps with the clothes off their backs to block the poisonous gas from seeping through. When the bodies were discovered, only 46 were found, along with a message written on the wall of the crosscut. It appeared at first to be a message from Bill Fessel, letting the rescuers know how long they were awake before the fumes overtook them. Now they had to work at figuring out how to bring the bodies back to the surface without further damaging the remains and then work on identifying them. They brought in gurneys with rubber bags to place each miner into and they were carried up the drift and into the adjacent connecting tunnels and up the skip of the Kennedy mine side. Each body was then transported up to the Argonaut mine and placed in the mill as a makeshift mortuary until all the bodies could be recovered. Besides discovering the bodies, they also had to bring up the belongings of the miners, such as clothing. Some of the miners had their brass tags with their individual miner number on them, but some of them did not have the tags at all. In fact, many of the tags were never found leading mine employees to have to identify bodies visually. According to the book 47 down by O. Henry Mace, there was another brass tag found that did not match any of the miners on duty that night. He stated that not only did the mine company never divulge the number of the tag, they also never divulged the person whose name was assigned to that number. Now, if that wasn't odd enough, Mace mentions that the rescue crew also found a ring within the belongings, but this was a personalized ring with the initials JSN, which none of the miners' names matched. When the foremen and volunteers went to collect the miners' effects from the change house, they also discovered 48 changes of clothes hanging on hooks, not 47. So, who did this extra pair of clothes belong to? And who was this unidentified person's tag discovered that the mine never wanted to mention? This is where it gets interesting. The photograph that has been circulated all of these years that people claim was the message scribbled on the wall by Bill Fessel is not entirely accurate. In reality, it is actually believed to be a staged photo made after the miners' bodies had been found and done so by a photographer for the San Francisco News by the name of W. Aaron McDonald. You see, there are two photographs in question, and one appears to be more authentic than the other. How do I know this? Well, this information comes from the research of the one and only late Amador County historian Larry Sanato, which was published in the Ledger Dispatch back in 1997. Larry happened to stumble upon an old photograph in the archives over 25 years ago that appeared to be similar but not exact, which prompted his further investigation. Quote, 
The last message written by the entombed miners, unquote, was written below the photograph with a stamped imprint on the back that said Jackson Studio, Jackson, California. It was believed that a local photographer had had a chance to photograph the original message long before McDonald. After carefully analyzing the photo, Sonato determined that the photo found in the Amador County archives is much more likely the original photo of the writing on the wall left by the miners, which was clearly made under duress by the look of the writing. The cleaner, more visibly clear writing that was circulated by the news media, which spells out Fessel's name on it, had to have been staged later, and it was clearly done with more precision, which would have been the last thing a miner, choking on carbon monoxide gases and fearing for his life in the dark, would have been doing at the time. The photo now believed to be the original message only states the words, 3 o'clock, gas getting strong, 4 o'clock, and instead of the name Fessel spelled F-E-Z-Z-E-L, as in the media circulated photo, the name was just spelled F semicolon Z. It was as if the writer of the message had lost consciousness prior to finishing the inscription on the wall. But why stage the photo in the first place? Sonato suspected something had happened to the original writing, which forced the media to recreate it. Another question to be asked was, how did Fessel's body end up in another area of the mine, away from and outside of the barricade where the other miners were discovered, if he had in fact scribbled the message on the wall? Again, Sonato believed that since Fessel was working alone, at the 4,650 foot level that night doing timber work, which was confirmed by those who worked at the mine that night, he would have had no idea what was going on in the other part of the mine and had no chance to make an escape before the fumes and the smoke had reached him. Another thing I would like to point out is that I personally enlarged copies of Bill Fessel's naturalization papers and his draft registry card and I looked at both signatures on both documents. Despite what some claim that Fessel signed his name with two Z's, both signatures were signed in cursive and showed his name spelled F-E-S-S-E-L. He did not use a Z. On September 22nd, three separate funerals took place at three local cemeteries in town. The Presbyterian Cemetery, which is now the public cemetery. St. Patrick's Catholic Cemetery, and St. Sava's Serbian Cemetery, which is next door. There were inquiries and hearings, plus speculation galore. Some argued they should have went down the Muldoon shaft to reach the men in time. Some argued that they should have sent the skip down to at least attempt to rescue some of the men, despite the fact that eventually the phone and bell system was disrupted by the fire, and thus the hoistman could not have known when to lift or lower the skip to and from the men in order to provide a clean escape for them. When it came to pointing fingers at someone, some insinuated that Fessel started the fire, as if he had conveniently snuck off into the night, and that was why they couldn't find his body. Maybe it was because he was German, and he had been an interpreter for the United States government for a while, 
and the fact he wasn't always a minor, but there was gossip that he could have been some sort of spy. Others insinuated that perhaps it was the work of communists known as Wobblies, which at the time went by the name of the Industrial Workers of the World. There were other insinuations that the fire could have been started by a mystery person who may have escaped out of a drift at the 2,500-foot level that exited out near the creek. Even Ben Sanginetti claimed there had been footprints found in the drift leading out of the mine at the same area and down to the creek, but no one ever did any further inquiry into this possible lead and it was left to be forgotten. Why no one bothered to investigate that makes me wonder about the whole thing altogether. There were other theories that some sort of an electrical shortage started the fire, which is a possibility. During the governor's committee hearing, Steve Pasolich, the skip tender, had mentioned that the skip was taking a long time to come up when he was going to take the lunch buckets down. He had called the hoistman, who had confirmed there was an issue with the cable and it was due to power failure. Later, two other miners confirmed this as they had been in the skip ascending when the power went out and they were stuck at the 800 foot level for about 15 minutes before the power came back on and the skip ascended to the surface level. They also mentioned there was a third miner in the skip with them and they did not know him. It was later determined the person's name was E. Madueri and that he did not stick around to be questioned and nobody bothered to look for him either as it turns out that he left town within the first few days of the disaster. It sounds a little suspicious if you ask me, but so far there were too many leads going in different possible places to point the finger at just this one person. Still, it is questionable. Now, I too have a possible theory, which could be completely unfounded, yet I would still like to toss it in the ring with all the others. You see, only eight months earlier, the Argonaut mine had been robbed by red bandana-wearing bandits, and only two of eight men were eventually caught. The robbers took approximately $60,000, which was actually in gold. Now, could this fire have been related? Well, perhaps someone may have come back to cause more trouble. The reason that I say this is for one, Hiram Baker, the gentleman who was caught and later acquitted, he could have had a score to settle with the mine after having been through the ringer with the newspapers and his much publicized trial. When Hiram was arrested, he was also with another man, only known as Frank Lynch. I found it interesting that Frank was never mentioned again in the news clippings about the robbery, only Hiram. And if Hiram was acquitted, what happened to the other guy? Well, I couldn't find any convictions noted for that robbery, so I started digging deeper. As it turned out, Frank was actually Arthur Welling of Indiana, and he was a known safe cracker and specialized in explosives. 
He was already on the lam for robbing Western Oil Refining Company in Indiana and had been originally caught with his friend Edward Stevens at the Omni Severin Hotel where they were found in the checkroom with nitroglycerin, more than likely ready to crack open the hotel safe. They were arrested and taken to the county jail, and on July 4, 1919, Arthur made an escape and helped 24 other inmates slip away into the night and into freedom. When he was caught with Hiram Baker in California and held on charges for the mine robbery, Sheriff George Lucott kept him in the Amador County Jail until he was extradited back to Michigan City, Indiana, where he was then sentenced to 14 years in the state penitentiary for his previous crimes. Lynch, a.k.a. Welling, had friends everywhere. So how do we know that one of Arthur's buddies didn't pay back the mine for their friend having been caught and being sent to the big house? We don't. Still, the blame kept going back to Bill Fessel, but those who knew him knew that wasn't possible. That didn't stop some law enforcement agencies from putting out APBs to be on the lookout for anyone matching Fessel's description. Even a year to the day after the disaster, there were newspapers claiming that there were sightings of Fessel who was allegedly on the run. Again, locals who knew him didn't believe it one minute and were adamant that he would eventually be found in the mine. Still, the whispers and the rumors were too much for Fessel's wife, who basically became a hermit and moved up to live with her mother in Pine Grove, where she remained for the rest of her life. On September 31, 1923, after flushing out the mine at the 4,650-foot level, the remains of the 47th miner was discovered, and the newspapers and everyone else who had made slanderous insinuations about Fessel had to eat crow. Although there was no forensic way to determine for certain who it was, it was believed to be the body of Bill Fessel, given the fact that he was the last one unaccounted for. A local dentist examined the skull of the remains that had been found, and he believed it to be Fessel based on his memory of Fessel missing molars and had present wisdom teeth that he had noticed during an examination a few years prior. The coroner also determined it to be the remains of William Edward Fessel and so Fessel took his rightful place besides his fallen comrades at the public cemetery in Jackson. When all was said and done, there were no real answers. The cause of the fire was never determined as a certainty, and it also brought up so many safety violations that had been overlooked. The report of Governor Stevens' Committee of Inquiry on the Argonaut Mine disaster stated that the following possibilities had all been taken into consideration. Incendiarism, defective electric wiring, carelessness with cigar or cigarette stub, carbide lamp or candle. In the end, they were unable to arrive at a definite conclusion, which, as they stated, still remained in doubt. 
They said at the end that, as previously stated, the first two, incendiarism or defective wiring, seemed to be the most acceptable, and basically they left it at that. It's been a hundred years since this tragic event took place, and still, there's never been any certainty as to how the fire started. Was it arson? Was it simply some sort of faulty electrical wiring in the manway? Or was it an accident? We will never know for sure. All we know is that 47 miners went to work that night, never to come back home to their families. Last Saturday, the exact 100 year anniversary of that very day, I spent that day with my dad and my fiance visiting the miners' graves at the different cemeteries in Jackson. It really came full circle for me as my dad brought that very same picture in the frame that he had brought home 30 years prior that sparked that interest into Amador County history, at least at such a young age for me. It was a day I will never forget. This event in Amador County history and California history was one of the worst mining accidents in history at that time and one we should never forget. Thank you for listening.